Well, friends, what a joy it is to gather with you this morning to worship the true God who does speak to his people. My name is Paul, and as it was said, I am not the apostle, uh, but I do have the privilege uh, to serve as one of the elders here at Stafford Baptist Church. It is especially good this morning to be with you on the first day of 2023. The beginning of a year is a wonderful and exciting time. One of the reasons is because it offers us the the promise of the power to change. It offers us the promise of transforming power. The habits that you've been wanting to build, the projects that you've been planning, the routines you've been putting off, all have a promise of completion at the beginning of the year. And so many of us begin to curate and make our goals and our plans. Maybe this very week you sat down to think through some of the goals that you might want to accomplish and aim for here in 2023. Why do we do this? Because the new year seemingly offers us the power to change. The clock strikes midnight and suddenly we're given new power. And that's what makes the new year a very dangerous time. Because as we curate and make our goals and plans as in the way in which we think the year should or shouldn't go, we give ourselves the illusion of control and power over our lives and the circumstances around it. We begin to believe that it is within our power and and ourselves to bring about the change that we want to see. But it's merely an illusion. It's not that making or having plans or aims are wrong. But rather, it's what James says, that we hold those plans in arrogance. That rather than saying, if the Lord wills, we assume and put ourselves in the place of God. And we don't just do this at the beginning of a new year. We do it all the time. Have you ever gone a day or longer without praying? Have you found yourself frustrated that there's not enough time in the day? Oh, if I only had a few more hours. We want power and control. We want authority over our lives and our future. We want things to sovereignly work out exactly how we plan them every time. In other words, we want to be God. But Stafford Baptist Church, brothers and sisters, friends and family, the message that we need to hear this morning, the first day of 2023 is, you are not God. We are not God. But there is a God who is transcendent and eternal above all other things. There is one who reigns and rules over all of his creatures. There is one transcendent and eternal God. And this is the God we read of in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. So if you have a Bible, please open there. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. If you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in the pew rack there in front of you. And you can find 1 Timothy chapter 1 on page 991. In just a moment, we'll read verses 12 through 17. But our focus this morning will be solely on verse 17. 
But because we're, we're parachuting down into a random spot of 1 Timothy, it might be helpful to give just some of the basic context of what's happening here in this letter. So 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his child in the faith, Timothy. He has left Timothy at Ephesus with the charge to preach the gospel to the church and to defend the church from false doctrine. Why? Well, because the true gospel is powerful and transformative, while false doctrine is dangerous and destructive. Paul will make this very point in what we will read in just a moment in verses 12 through 17, highlighting his own life as an example of the transforming power of the true gospel. And then he says, the confidence we have in the transforming power of the gospel comes from knowing the true God who comes down from heaven to save sinners. The hope for change comes not from a new year, but from the true God. So let us hear the word of God from Timothy 1, 12 through 17, and then I will pray for the hearing and proclaiming of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you that you have given us breath in life. We thank you that you have sent Jesus to save sinners like us. That while we stood and professed that we were God, you, the one true and only God, so worked all of time to bring about Jesus coming to save us from our sin. And so, Father, as we now turn to consider who you are, may you give us from your word eyes to see and hearts that hear and understand the far great beauty and excellence that that is you. Father, may we see your excellencies and your beauty and we be moved to praise you with an upright heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our one sentence summary, our main idea this morning is this. There is one transcendent and eternal king who mercifully saves sinners. There is one transcendent and eternal king who mercifully saves sinners. 
While we can give ourselves the illusion of power and control, there really is only one God who sovereignly controls all that he has made. There is one God who is Lord of time and life and light. And this one true glorious God has pursued us. He has come down from heaven to save sinners. And so this morning we'll do something a little different, bouncing around from text to text, though using 1 Timothy and the description of God here to kind of hold us and center us as we consider this transcendent and eternal king. There are many valuable and and important practices that you can and should incorporate into your life this year, friends. But there is only one God. And as we see him for who he is, we are radically transformed. There is one transcendent and eternal king who mercifully saves sinners. Well, this morning we're going to consider four aspects of God's nature that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. And as we consider those, we're going to do that in contrast to what we are like. To kind of highlight that we are not God, but he is. It's important to note here at the beginning that we will not plumb the full depths of our God. We will merely dip our toes into the great ocean of the knowledge of God. We will do this in part because our God is incomprehensible. He cannot be fully comprehended, but he can be known. He has spoken and revealed himself to us in his word that we might know him. So may our hearts be moved in deeper praise of our King this morning. Let's move to our first point this morning. God is eternal. We are limited. God is eternal. We are limited. So the Apostle Paul has, has written in 1 Timothy 1 of, of the great grace that God has shown him. And having considered his grace... He is so moved in praise that he proclaims in verse 17 to the king of the ages. I think Paul here is giving praise to God the Father. Often when Paul directs praise like this, he does so to God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. But what has moved him to this praise of God the Father is the work of God the Son that has been made known to him by the work of God the Spirit. And so really, as he proclaims this praise, he praises the God, the triune God, the King of the ages. Your translation might say something like King Eternal. That's the idea. Paul is overcome by all in the God who was and is and is to come. He is the king of every age. Human kings live and die. They come and go. But there is a king that lives forever. This king has existed before time. Many of us started Bible reading plans this morning. We read Genesis 1.1. Let me just remind us of the first four words. In the beginning, God. When there was nothing else, there was God. God endures forever. He has always been and will always be. This is the King Eternal. And as the King Eternal, we see that He is the beginning and the end, but we have a beginning and an end. In Isaiah forty-eight twelve, we read, I am He, I am the first, and I am the last. 
He is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation 1.8 tells us that he is the one who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. Friends, God has no beginning and no end, but we do. You had a beginning. At one point, you were not. And then you were. And while you now are, at one point, you will no longer be. There is an appointed time for our birth and for our death. We have a beginning and an end. We as creatures were not intended to be unlimited, but we have limits. We as creatures are going to be forgotten. But God will be remembered forever. Psalm 145 verse 13 gives praise to God. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. His kingdom is for every generation. It is not limited by time or space. God was not created but is creator. He is the everlasting one. Not only is he the beginning and the end, but we see in his eternal nature that he is the Lord of time, but we are limited by time. He is not constrained by time. He is outside of time. He rules over time. And so his relationship to time is far different than our relationship to time. We are limited by time. He is the master of time. Even this week, I felt mastered by time as I worked on this sermon, as I thought about 45 minutes to proclaim all of who God is. Friends, I have limitations, and so do you. But this is something that God never feels. Psalm 90 verse 4 tells us, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Time does not affect God. He is not constrained or limited by time. A thousand years are like a drop in the bucket. God is not like us watching the clock tick ever so slowly. Nor is he ever caught off guard looking down at his watch to say, Oh, wow, where did the time go? God is not affected by time. But we are often frustrated by time. Who this week felt time move too slowly? All of you should be raising your hands. Amen, right? You were driving home from your trip and that clock wasn't moving fast enough. You were getting cleaning up for a company coming over and and it just seemed that all your time disappeared. Each and every one of us has been frustrated by time, even this week. But God has sovereign control over time. In fact, we see his sovereign control as he worked all of human history so that when the fullness of time came, he sent his son. That's what Galatians 4, 4 tells us. We can barely organize our schedules in a week. But God organized all of human history to bring about the right time for his son to come. He is the Lord of time. He sets the boundaries of time and we live within them. So what does this mean for us? Well, let me give you two encouragements. First, be faithful in the time you have. Be faithful in the time you have. 
He is the Lord of time and you are limited by it and you are not even promised tomorrow. God is the Lord of time has appointed both your birth and your death. And so Paul, Colossians 4, will tell us to walk in wisdom, making the best use of your time. Have you made the best use of your time this week? As you think about your goals for next year, are you thinking about how to faithfully use your time? Friends, you will not accomplish everything you want to. That is okay. That's the whole point. You're limited. But are you being faithful in the time that you have? That's encouragement number one. Be faithful in the time that you have. Encouragement number two is to find rest in God's lordship of time. Second Peter tells us that God is not slow to fulfill his promise. That a thousand years is as a day and a day like a thousand years. And so you need not fill your heart with anxieties about the time that you have or don't have. Rest in God's good lordship of time. Psalm 127 verses 1 and 2 say this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Many of us did not get full nights of sleep last night. For good reason. Celebrating is is a fine reason to do that every so often. But I wonder how many of us, even this week, were, were up early because we were anxious about something. Or went to bed late because we couldn't get the thoughts running from our head. Friends, you can have confidence that the Lord is wielding all of time with wisdom. So rise and work and then go to sleep and rest. It's not an excuse for laziness, but it is a reason for purposeful labor and intentional rest. God is the king of the ages. He is eternal and we are limited. And as the eternal one, we know that he is the only one who has immortality. Which brings us to our second point. God is immortal. We are mortal. Back down in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Paul declares praise to the king of the ages, the king eternal. And then I think he begins to describe what this king eternal is like. And the first thing we see is he is immortal. He is not bound by death. Rather, he is the Lord of life. As the eternal one, he is the one who is wholly sufficient in and of himself. He needs nothing from human hands. We, we cannot contribute to God in any way. He is the immortal one. Meaning he is both the only one who is unending, but also the one from whom all life comes. This is what we saw in Acts chapter 17, verse 25. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God, as the immortal one, is the one who is Lord of life and death. He is the one who gives to you your very breath this morning. Why is God able to give life? Well, listen to John chapter 5, verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Or first John, or John chapter 1 verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light 
of men. Why is God able to give life? It's because he is life. Life is in him. There is no life outside of God. And as the immortal one, he is the Lord of life who will never die and gives life to us. And so in contrast to the one who is life in himself, we need and are dependent on another for life. Job 12, chapter 10, Job 12, verse 10 says this, In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Every living thing has life from God. In his hand he holds our breath. This was demonstrated for us from the very beginning of creation. As we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, or as we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. When did man become living? It was not just from his existence. It was from God breathing life into him. We get our life from God. He is the Lord of life, the immortal one. And so because we have no life in ourselves, but it comes from another source, we cannot be God. God is very, in his very nature, immortal, not like us. We are, in our very nature, mortal, subject to death. But God is the Lord of life. And so we demonstrate the utter and the height of our foolishness when we trade the glory of the immortal God for that which is corruptible. This is what we see in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Friends, when we sin, we're not making merely a mistake. We're not just doing a a bad thing that we shouldn't be doing. We are exchanging the glory of the immortal God for that which is corruptible and mortal. It's like exchanging a priceless family heirloom for a $50 diamond bought from a vendor off the street in New York City. It is foolish. And yet this is what each and every one of us has done. We have been given life by the immortal God for the glory of the immortal God and have sought to praise that which is mortal and perishable. When we are stingy and not generous, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for that which will perish. When we spend our time looking at Looking lustfully at images on the screen, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for that which will perish. When we refuse to share the gospel out of fear of man, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for that which will perish. When we complain and grumble, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for that which will perish. We all do this, exchanging the glory of God for for mortal things, 
Because as sinners, we are all born dead spiritually. We have physical life in God, but we are spiritually dead. But the immortal God offers not only physical life, but spiritual life. Jesus will declare in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not only the way to life, he is life. He is the bread of life. And so when we partake of Christ by faith, turning from our sins, we are given eternal life. And this is the hope of the gospel, that as Jesus was raised from dead to new life, taking hold of his imperishable form, we too, when the trumpet sound, shall be changed, and this mortal body will put on immortality. Friends, our God is immortal. His majesty is far too great for even our eyes to see and comprehend. Which leads us then to our third point. God is invisible. We are visible. We've seen so far God is eternal and we are limited. God is immortal and we are mortal. And this morning we see God is invisible, but we are visible. As Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 proclaims the greatness of God, he not only declares that God is the eternal and immortal one, but he is the invisible one. And here would be a good time to make a side note that I've been wanting to make. We are trying to use human words here to describe one who is completely and totally unlike us. Which is why the apostles describe God as they do so often in the, the negative Right? So rather than being mortal, God is immortal. He is not mortal, not bound by death, not subject to death. And the same is true of his invisibility. God is not visible. He is not bound by light in the material world, but rather is the Lord of light. When we don't know how to explain who God is, we just say the opposite. We know he is not this and not that. The Bible is clear that no one has ever seen God. Paul will say later on in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that God dwells in unapproachable light that he cannot be seen. But even more than that, not only is God unable to be seen, in Exodus 33.20 we're told that no one can see God and live. That said, we do have instances in the Old Testament where God purposely reveals himself. Even in Exodus 33 and 34, where the Lord passes by Moses. But the point is clear. Unless God sovereignly chooses to make himself known, he cannot be seen. And who does God most clearly reveal himself in? Well, John 1 chapter, John chapter 1 verse 18 tells us, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of his glory. It is through Jesus that God the Father makes himself known. The invisible God sovereignly chooses to make himself known through Jesus. 
So to say God is invisible is not to say that he cannot be known or cannot be seen, but it's to regard him as the Lord of light. This is what one theologian says. To say that God is invisible is not to exclude God from the realm of the visible, but to regard him as the Lord of visibility, the Lord of light. In other words, God must purposefully and intentionally make himself known. He chooses where and how he will reveal himself. We can't just pick up our telescope and look and find God. We have not and cannot see God unless he chooses to make himself known. But we are not like this. While, the God must, while God must sovereignly choose to make himself known, we cannot hide ourselves from the all-seeing eyes of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You and I, friends, cannot hide from God. The Lord of light can choose when to be seen, but we are always seen. That which we try to hide cannot be hidden. That which is done in the dark, God sees. Do you live as if all that you see that you do is seen by God? Kids, this is a good lesson for you. Did you know that God sees you even when your parents don't see you? You are not God, just like we are not God. God always sees us. We are visible. We live and operate in the, in the realm of visibility. But he is the Lord of light. And one day this Lord of light will make himself fully known. This is the promise of 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. What we see now is in part. We are like a person looking through a mirror. We see God. We can know God through his word and through Jesus. But we don't, we won't, we don't see as clearly as we will when we see him face to face. And the promise of the Bible is that we shall one day know him fully as he fully knows us. That day will come when Jesus returns. But as we await the arrival of Jesus, the New Testament calls us again and again to now set our eyes and our mind on that which is unseen. You can think of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. That we are told, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The invisible God calls on us to look to Him and not to this immaterial world. He calls on us to set our eyes on Him. Even as we cannot see Him, He is the one who we are to set our minds and attention on. He, the Lord of light, is uniquely worthy of our attention far more than anything else in this world. For He is the only God Which leads us to our fourth and final point. God is unique and we are ordinary. God is unique and we are ordinary. 
God is eternal, immortal, invisible, and the only God, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 17. He concludes his declaration of what God is like by declaring that he is the only God. There is no other God but this God. He who is the Lord alone is Lord of time and Lord of life and Lord of light. He is the Lord alone. God is unique. He is the only one of his kind. There is no other God. He is wholly set apart from us. Now we, being ordinary, does not mean that we don't have value. We are each intimately woven by God, made in his image, each of us then having extensive value coming from him. But we are ordinary because we are one of billions of people. Yet there is only one God. This, friends, is the testimony of all of Scripture. And so we're going to do something a little unique. We're going to let the Bible do the talking. Well, that's not unique. We let the Bible do the talking every day and all the time. But I'm just going to read ten straight passages that highlight the, the, the uniqueness of our God, whether through rhetorical question or declaration. They'll all be on the screen behind me. And if you'd like this list afterwards, I'd be glad to give it to you. So don't feel like you have to rush to write them down. And after reading all of those verses, we will make a few observations in conclusion. So let's begin. Exodus fifteen eleven says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Deuteronomy 4, verse 35 says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, and there is no other besides him. A few verses later in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39, he tells us, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Psalm 71, verse 19 says, Your righteousness, O God, reaches to high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? And the answer is no one. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18 says, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare him with? Or verse 25, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Or Isaiah 46, verse 5, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? The testimony of the Old Testament, friends, is that God is God alone. There is no one like him. But it's the testimony of the New Testament as well. John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, for whom are are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And Paul concludes Romans chapter 16, verse 27, saying, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.
Brothers and sisters, the Bible is clear. You are not God. There is one true God. Many will try to put themselves in the place of God, but there is only one who is utterly unique and cannot be compared against anyone or anything else. He is the only God and we are not. He is the true God and we are his creatures. But what is it that so often moves God to declare his uniqueness and his people to praise his uniqueness? What is it that drives this sort of praise of knowing the only true God? Well, consider the passages that we just read and what was going on around them. In Exodus 15... The people of Israel have just been rescued out of Egypt where God humiliates the so-called gods of the Egyptians and saves and rescues his people through the Red Sea. His people move to declare, who is like you? Or in Deuteronomy 4, what is it that God showed his people to to show that he was the unique God? Well, that's what we saw in Exodus. He rescued them from Egypt. It's his saving work that reveals that he alone is God. Or in Isaiah 40 and 46, where we have the promises of God coming to bring comfort, to bring salvation to his people. And as he does this, he declares, I am God alone. And in Romans 16, this doxology comes at the end of one of the richest testimonies to the saving work of God. And it's what we see here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. What was it that moved Paul into this kind of praise of his God? Well, it's that this eternal, imperishable, invisible, utterly unique God has come down to save sinners. If your Bibles are still open to 1 Timothy 1, 17, look just a couple verses up above and see verse 15. Where we read, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This holy, unique God has acted in a holy, unique way. For one, Paul tells us in Romans, would scarcely die for a righteous person. But this God, the only God, has shown his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For you and I who have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the corrupted moral world. You and I who have continually boasted in our own ability, putting ourselves in the place of this holy God. He came for us. He, the Lord of time, entered into time. He who is invisible made himself known as the word who is flesh dwelt among us. He who is imperishable and immortal took on flesh and died in our place and rise, rose again that we may have life. And he who is the only God so loved the world that he gave his only son for sinners. To him, Paul says, be honor and glory forever and ever. Friends, don't rush by it. God came in flesh. 
He lived the life that you and I couldn't live. He, the very God of life, gave up his life in our place that we might have eternal life with him forever. And the resurrection and ascension of Jesus proves that if you turn from your sin and trust in him, you will have life. The unique God came for ordinary sinners like you and me. Are you consumed by this God? Is he your only desire as you move into 2023 and beyond? Brothers and sisters, as this year begins, the one consuming desire of our souls should be to bring honor and glory to the king of the ages. To behold, worship, and enjoy the immortal, invisible God. All our other desires, aims, resolutions, and plans need to fall in submission to this one desire. So make your plans, set your goals, enjoy the events of what this year will bring. But as you do this, ensure that you are doing so as one who is consumed by the God who is holy, holy, holy. You are not God, but there is one transcendent and eternal King who mercifully saves sinners. Let's pray. O great God of highest heaven, we come to declare that there is none like you. To whom would we liken you, O God? You alone are the Lord of life and light and time. You alone are the source of our life. You alone give eternal life, for life is in you. Father, you are the one who endures through every generation, from everlasting to everlasting, the beginning and the end. So, Father, we pray that you would assure us of your greatness, your holiness, as we consider how you came to save sinners, that the God who is the Lord of time entered into our time. And as we declare your holiness together, may our hearts be consumed by a greater vision of your sovereignty over all things. May we declare to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, and the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, friends, in just a moment, we will respond to God's word by singing of his holiness. But before that, will you take just a moment to silently reflect on what you have just heard? Maybe you need to confess where you have sought to put yourself in the place of God. Or maybe you just need to praise Him for the greatness that you have seen. Take a few moments to do so and then we will sing together.